by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the uh, recent labor victory at Amazon and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world, declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is a small but very important snippet of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Beyond Vietnam speech delivered on this day at Riverside Church in New York City in 1967. This was not his first full speech on the issue of Vietnam, as many believe. King had previously made comments criticizing the fiscal priorities of the United States, juxtaposing the country's commitment to war, but not to protecting its own citizens when he said, quote, millions of dollars can be spent every day to hold troops in South Vietnam, and our country cannot protect the rights of Negroes in Selma. He said that in March of 1965. He said that he had, quote, a prophetic function as a minister and as one greatly concerned about the need for peace in our world and the survival of mankind. He said, I must continue to take a stand on the issue. He said that in August 1965. In February 1967, King gave a speech in Los Angeles, California, called The Casualties of the War in Vietnam, in which he stressed the history of the conflict and said that American power should be harnessed to the service of peace and human beings, not an inhumane power unleashed against defenseless people. So people need to be clear that Dr. King didn't make this speech at Riverside Church and come completely out of the blue criticizing the blood-soaked priorities of the U.S. government. King had been criticizing capitalism for quite some time, writing in a letter to then Coretta Scott telling her, I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism started out with a noble and high motive, but like most human systems, it fell victim to the very thing it was revolting against. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. He wrote that letter to Coretta in July 1952. They weren't married yet. They were dating. Coretta married Martin the next year in June, and as far as I'm concerned, this proves that the best women love socialism. He told the Negro American Labor Council in 1961, call it democracy or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children. 
He said, we must recognize that we can't solve our problem now until there is a radical redistribution of economic and political power. This means a revolution of values and other things. We must see now that the evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism are all tied together. You can't really get rid of one without getting rid of the others. The whole structure of American life must be changed. America is a hypocritical nation, and we must put our house in order. And he said that to the Southern Christian Leadership Council staff in May of 1967. He also told the SCLC board in another speech in the same year that the evils of capitalism are as real as the evils of militarism and the evils of racism. He told a New York Times reporter in April 1968, in a sense, you could say we're involved in the class struggle. And he said that after returning from Memphis, where he was supporting the sanitation worker strike and said in a sermon at Bishop Charles Mason Temple of the Church of God in Christ in support of that struggle. If America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all God's children to have the basic necessities of life, she too will go to hell. When King delivered the Beyond Vietnam speech, every major newspaper condemned him. And even the NAACP and Ralph Bunch, the first black man to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his dubious ceasefire arrangement in Israel in 1950, accused King of connecting two issues that had nothing to do with each other, Vietnam and civil rights. Just a few weeks later, on April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Now, I believe people mistakenly think that Dr. King was assassinated because he began speaking out about the war in Vietnam. I disagree. I believe that Dr. King was assassinated because he challenged the legitimacy and the veracity of the very notions that American society exists upon. He consistently called out the hypocrisy of this country with its stated values of equality and justice and freedom for all that regularly operates with what he called a deadly Western arrogance around the world, always being on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Today, as domestic poverty grows, racism, xenophobia, trans and homophobia, misogyny and ableism persists, and U.S. militarism continues to expand, impoverishing much of the rest of the world to enrich a very few. We continue in this struggle. 55 years after King's Beyond Vietnam speech and 54 years after his assassination, King has been proven right about everything. It is still true that our only hope lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into an even more hostile world, declaring our eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. And the world, that is the U.S. government, the governments of its allies and too many of its deeply indoctrinated citizens are still hostile to this message. But this is why we must continue with Dr. King's legacy of anti-capitalism, anti-racism, and anti-militarism. This is what we do on this show every day and what we do in the organizations we belong to when we're not on this show. 
This is certainly what the Black Alliance for Peace was formed to do, organized on this very day, five years ago, to recapture that Black radical, anti-war, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist spirit that King had just begun to inspire before he was cut down. So we continue to dedicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world because it truly is our only hope. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Luis Feliz Leon, a staff writer for Labor Notes. Luis, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Luis, of course, uh, some very, I think, uh, interesting and positive news uh, on the labor side of things coming out of uh, New York City, where the first ever union at Amazon uh, was established there at the JFK 8 uh, facility on uh, Staten Island. I mean, this has been a part of a, a sort of long running effort. Uh, to uh, you know, mobilize and, and organize labor in uh, Amazon. I think in, in different parts of the country. But I'm sort of interested your uh, top line thoughts, not only about this development, but uh, uh, what do you think it sort of means for there to be a union established at you know a tech giant like Amazon? Yeah, I think what this means is that there's a possibility of this opening up the potential for other workers to organize at other Amazon facilities. So Amazon is the second largest employer um, in the country, um, Walmart being the first. And, you know, the company has resisted unionization for many, many years. Um, So I think this this is groundbreaking in terms of what it could mean for reviving the labor movement and also for the, for, I mean, Amazon nearly employs nearly 1 million people for all those workers that labor in its warehouses. Yeah. And, you know, this struggle uh, being won by the workers in this particular location could have repercussions for workers who are uh, trying to unionize in other Amazon locations. We uh, know that there has been an ongoing struggle to uh, organize Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, and in other locations. So how has this uh, win for Amazon workers in New York in the Staten Island warehouse, how has that been received in other locations? Well, I mean, I think the labor movement has cheered, you know, this has cheered the workers in Staten Island and it has, you know, celebrated this news. Um, I, I received calls on over the weekend of another independent union in North Carolina where workers are, have been organizing. So I think, you know, folks, folks are responding to this by organizing, which is the right way to respond to it. You know, in addition to clapping for these workers to, donating to their GoFundMe page. People should also organize, follow their example and organize your workplace. 
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, from your perspective, having seen the process uh, uh, play out, you know, from the standpoint of a reporter, Luis, I mean, what do you think uh, sort of strategically took place during this uh, Amazon union drive that sort of helped, you know, sustain uh, uh, the work they were doing there? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And people are going to be reflecting on that for some time. Speaking, having spoken to the workers, I think they themselves are grappling with like what ultimately was key um, in winning this, right? Like they they threw out the playbook of how you're supposed to run a union campaign, um, and and they still won, right? So one thing that they did that's unprecedented is that usually when you file for a union election, you try to get at least seventy percent of people to sign cards, right? Because what happens is that between the moment that you submit your cards to petition the NLRB for an election, the employer is going to launch a campaign. I mean, they start campaigning against you even before you officially announce, but it really ramps up. So what people do is they file with 70% and try to hold on to at least 40 or 50%, knowing that they're going to lose some support in the process of the employer's offensive. These folks, you know, barely got to 30%. And what happened was incredible because it means that from the moment that they filed at 30%, they must have then reached out to, you know, hundreds of other workers that came to their side. So that in and of itself is really impressive. Um, In terms of what they did, what I've heard from workers is that the worker to worker relationships that they developed were really key. So one of the talking points that union busters use is that the union is a third party. Like these folks are coming from outside, you know, they're trying to make promises right now and so forth, but they're not really going to be able to meet those promises because it has to all be negotiated. Um, so what these workers did was they talked to their coworkers as colleagues, as like, I'm just like you. Um, and I think that really resonated with people, right? Like the workforce is fairly young, I think, Average age is about like 26 years old. So so they felt like they were talking to their colleagues. And I think that that ultimately that ultimately helped them prevail. Yeah. You know what they uh, did? It looked like something that is it's called mapping out, uh, mapping the the warehouse. And basically, I think what what it seems that uh, the workers responded to was not, you know, as Amazon uh, tried to portray the organizing effort as the work of some outside agitators, but it was workers uh, talking with their workers and, you know, having tabling outside of the warehouse and just having conversations with people, telling them, like you said, I'm like you, where then entire uh, departments were basically flipped for uh, in support of the union. So how did the workers respond to what, you know, we recall was a very uh, nefarious and, and anti-worker and very um, uh, pervasive campaign against the union effort by Amazon? What was that like to, to from what you heard from the workers to continue this uh, organizing as the company they were working for were actively and very, very uh, uh, forcefully working against them. 
Yes, I mean, I think some workers definitely bought into Amazon's line, line of attack, right? Like one of the lines of attack was that the was that the independent union didn't have experience, which workers admitted to. They said, like, yeah, we don't have this experience, but we are working. They have a, a pro bono lawyer that was um, supporting them. So I feel like they were really honest and humble about what they knew and what they didn't know. But what they did know is that they wanted a union and that workers had the power to demand a union. And I think that's the key piece there, right? What really distinguished this campaign from a lot of other union campaigns is that this was a rank-and-file upsurge. These were workers in the warehouse rising up and organizing their fellow co-workers. Without any incentive, without pay, they came in on their days off and they you know, sat in the cafeteria and the break rooms and they had those conversations. And when they had those conversations, what they heard was, you know, the company is telling us that Chris Smalls was fired because he broke company policy. And in reality, that that was a lie. You know, Chris Smalls was fired because he led a walkout, raising concerns, safety concerns during the pandemic. So there was a lot of misinformation that, you know, Amazon tried to fan throughout the warehouse so that workers to discredit Chris Smalls and to discredit the unionization effort. So um, workers were successful at countering that. I mean, how they were able to counter that, I think still um, remains, you know, a mystery to some degree because think about it. The committee had about 25 people, the organizing committee. There were supporters that maybe towards the end, they had like 100. But the warehouse has over 8,000 workers. And they're multiple shifts, right? They targeted the night shift, uh, which is the shift that I myself walked to the warehouse and was stood outside like around 12 a.m. talking to workers. Um, so they, those workers seem to have had a lot of grievances about Amazon. And that they really tapped into that. And, and that sense of outrage ultimately, you know, pushed them to vote yes and support the union. But at the end of the day, it, it was a massive, massive warehouse. And they didn't have... Um, the numbers to reach every single worker. So what must have happened, and this is just conjecture, is that those pro-union workers then spoke to their co-workers and they were able to spread that message. But it wasn't in a typical campaign, because you mentioned mapping. What happens is that a union um, puts up these big charts and they write down all these names and they mark, okay, I, I spoke to this person. After I spoke to them, they wore a union lanyard. They came, they participated in the WhatsApp. They wore a shirt. So they start mapping what actions workers have taken to assess whether they are actually pro-union and going to vote yes. So folks didn't do that charting, right? So there was mapping, but it was mapping that wasn't the systematic uh, thing that we see in union campaigns with, you know, thousands, millions of dollars put in and staff organizers they talk to people and they try to develop genuine relationships, but they weren't tracking every single conversation that they had. They weren't marking down this person wore a lanyard. So that in and of itself is also amazing. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, it, it also shows that, you know, um, this uh, anti-union 
uh, you know, propaganda and rhetoric that Amazon was putting out, you know, about the, the union being some kind of outside uh, third party. You know, it was actually the complete opposite. And it I mean, it failed because the connection between the organizers and the workers was organic. Right. Which is not something that you can teach. And like you say, there was a lot of, um, you know, hard work and sort of intentional conversations uh, that were had to try to build this effort. I mean, you mentioned in the piece that you post about this um, on Labor notes about, you know, one person who would come, uh, you know, on their days off and would organize in the break room for for 10 hours. You know what I mean? And that's the sort of, you know, uh, uh, real work and effort that it takes to, to really build a, this kind of organizing effort. So I feel like to me, Luis, it's kind of a, a reminder of really the strength of a worker's struggles. And I think we've been seeing a, quite a bit of here lately. And I tend to think there's a connection there in terms of the pandemic and its impact on workers. But I just feel like there's um, a lot of lessons that um, are still yet to be pulled from this Amazon struggle, not only within the world of labor, but for sort of, you know, the progressive movement writ large. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the lesson is that workers have power and all we have to do is trust that power and let them take the lead. I think that's that's the clearest lesson that comes out of this, right? So, um in terms of the organizing that happened within the warehouse, um, it was clear that there were natural leaders in this warehouse and people respected them. So the person that I think you're alluding to is Derek Palmer, which is one of the vice presidents of the union and a good friend of Chris Smalls. And, you know, the commitment that he had was not just his alone. There were others like, like him that committed 10 hours or more, you know, um, to this effort. But it's one thing is for you to commit 10 hours. But if your coworkers don't respect you, um, if when you tell them that, you know, Amazon is lying to you, they don't trust your words, that, that doesn't go very far. So I think there was a combination of really strong, natural leaders in the warehouse like Derek um, and this other worker named Casio and Angel, Angelica Maldonado. Like, and others, they they genuinely knew how to identify who the leaders were in the ba- various groups. So when I went down to the warehouse, I spoke to workers individually, but I also spoke to workers in groups. And one thing that surprised me as a, about the warehouse is that unlike Alabama, right, where people were raising out of the warehouse to get to their homes, they don't want to talk to anybody because they live sometimes like 45 minutes away, is that these folks, you know, they... And during their break room, they will congregate in groups and, and talk to one another. They would be in groups at the bus stop. So there was uh, there were these natural social groupings, that, natural like subcultures within the warehouse that the organizers are able to organize and map and and reach out to the leaders of those groups. And that's how they were ultimately able to persuade people and inoculate. In organizing, we talk about inoculating workers against the propaganda of the boss and that's what they did um and Derek is a great example because he you know he was someone that you sometimes as a reporter I interview people from unions and they talk about you know they talk a good game and they use all the right lingo but these folks they just they just they just knew how to connect with people they did relational organizing they were just very good at that and 
You know, like there's some skills, some methods. They did some studies. So I don't want to discount that. You know, they actually looked to the 1930s, which was the last time where you saw um, upsurges of workers and new unions being created. And this is the moment that they were they were modeling themselves after organizers from the 1930s and the 1920s. So that also tells us something. They were not looking, you know, to what is happening in the present day. They were looking to the past at a moment of mass worker, you know, revolts, upsurges, militancy. So that that's the bug that they caught. And lastly, you know, the, the point about the, the third party, the union, like that's, even if it's a union that's been established, like that's always a talking point. You know, the union is ultimately the workers. And even when it's an, an established union, that talking point is, is not true. It's always been a lie. Uh, the, the problem is that some unions are operate very top-down, right? And they they don't really let workers take the initiative that the folks did. Like, these folks are doing, like, cookouts, which, too, like, they would do, like, social events to really build familiarity and trust among workers. So they were doing those kinds of tactics. But I don't know if, like, you know, an official union would sanction having, like, a bonfire by, like, a bus stop. You know, they would think maybe they could get sued, they could get sued or a fire could start. Like, who knows? Like, your legal department would just put up, like, a lot of resistance to doing that. But these folks, they didn't care about any of that. They didn't have to worry about any of that. So, I mean, that, that's also impressive. Like, I mean, I, I called it in labor notes that it was, it was the stuff of, like, a Disney movie. Where you know, think I don't know. You choose your movie, like the Mighty Ducks, where everybody thinks that they're going to lose this hockey game, and then ultimately they prevail. These are the proverbial underdogs defeating, you know, the a, a foe that seemed all powerful until they weren't anymore. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Luis, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the latest U.S. sanctions leveled at Ethiopia and what it means both for that country and the region. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Nebiu Asphalt, co-founder of the Ethiopian American Development Council. Nebiu, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And uh, maybe you are uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, just approved and really overwhelmingly approved the Ethiopia Peace and Stabilization Act of 2022, as it's called. And while that uh, a title sounds like it would be something positive for Ethiopia, this actually appears to be um, a kind of sanctions regime that Washington is aiming at Ethiopia. So I was hoping you could help us understand more um, about uh this act, what's contained within it, and what do you think uh, some of the impacts may be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the name, the actual purpose of the bill has nothing to do with the name. I mean, quite honestly, they might have, they they might as well have named it 
let's go save puppies and flowers in Ethiopia. This is a draconian sanctions bill, uh, not just on Ethiopia, also against Eritrea, two uh, Horn of Africa nations. It's a, it's a sanctions bill that's going to put their economy um, in a chokehold for, for 10 years. Um, you know, um, two additional African countries, uh, I think by now the, the number of African countries that are sanctioned is, is getting close to 20, which would make it like one third of the continent. You know, the overall tone of this, this bill, uh, and there's a House bill also going along with it called HR 6600. They're both, you know, typical sanctions that go against Africa, paternalist, um, disrespectful, that really basically, uh, particularly on this one, uh, it really takes away the sovereignty of the Ethiopian government and makes it accountable to the United States, where the Ethiopian government has to submit a report every six months um, and, and comply with the demands. And, and it's very problematic. It's going to affect um, the country's ability to get uh, loans, IMF, World Bank loans, African development banks. Um, it's going to affect uh, everything. And most of all, it's going to affect the, the most vulnerable in the population, the poorest of the poor. Um, it is also going to affect the country's ability to defend itself. As you know, Ethiopia is in, in the middle of a, a, a conflict uh, and Eritrea defending itself from an armed insurgency uh, called TPLF that is backed by the United States. And, and essentially, this sanction is going to tie um, the Ethiopian government's hand um, and really give unfair advantage to this West uh, rebels supported by the West. Um, and really also forcing uh, negotiation and a whole lot of other things that really, you know, uh, is it, going to put the Ethiopian people, the Ethiopian government, the Eritrean people, the Eritrean uh, government in a position where they, they cannot defend themselves, in a position where they would lose um, economic opportunities. Um, and, and mind you, this is a country already ravaged by war, um, the COVID pandemic is still happening there. There's famine, there's drought. On top of this, uh, a sanction and would be completely devastating. Yeah, that's definitely uh, the case with this very misleading, uh, misleadingly titled uh, piece of legislation. And I think the way the U.S. has, uh, the U.S. media has characterized the conflict in Ethiopia as kind of an inter-ethnic uh, uh, conflict is a part of the uh, misinformation about what has been going on in Ethiopia and what the TPLF is and the role uh, that that group plays in the U.S.'s action. So I'm wondering uh, if you can give us a little bit of insight into, you know, what, why is the U.S. ignoring the uh, the people's struggle against the TPLF? And, and what did you mean when you said they were supporting, the U.S. government was supporting the TPLF? And how does that play into uh, the creation of this new sanctions regime that's really what this legislation is all about, never you? Yeah, so the TPLF, it's the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, um, it is, it's an ethnic entity um, that, that ruled Ethiopia for 27 years. Um, there was basically, the people rose up in 2018. Um, there was um, um, somewhat of uh, an uprise, uh, not 
quite a revolution, but uh, an uprise that, that lasted for two, three years that forced them out of power. And, and this group, while they were on power for 27 years, they were one of uh, Washington's closest allies. Uh, they really operated like a proxy, more like um, a po- the police of the United States in the area. Um, they've, you know, um, um, they invaded Somalia, um, you know, in the name of fighting uh, terrorism um, to fight al-Shabaab. They had, uh, you know, attacked Eritrea, invaded Eritrea, and, you know, they um, had given uh, bases there for drone bases to for, you know, bombing Somalia and other areas. Um, and throughout Africa, they sent troops um, in the name of peacekeeping and things like that. So it was an entity that really... Um, was was very friendly with the West, and they were very favored by the West, including the United States, because of the role they played. Um, you know, there was assistance coming into Ethiopia when they ruled Ethiopia, up to a billion dollars a year, which much of that money was looted by them, uh, by this DPLF uh, folks. Now, once the Ethiopian people removed them from power, um, you know, you have a, a new leader uh, that came in, a new government that came in, so this TPLF force, um, uh, you know, retreated into their native region of uh, Tigray for, for two years, basically run the region like a, a semi-autonomously without any regard to the central federal government. And finally, on November 4th, 2020, the night of the U.S. presidential election, uh, they launched an armed uh, attack on Ethiopia and Eritrea. And that's how the war started. But unfortunately, what's happened is over the past year and a half, as this uh, deadly war was waged by them, basically to overthrow the government and get back into power, the entire Western media has been cheering them. The entire Western media has been airing their propaganda, uh, not telling the truth. And they've been getting a whole lot of diplomatic cover in the EU, uh, here in the U.S., and Congress. You know, and it's, it's, you know, for those of us who follow this every day for a lot of Ethiopians and Eritreans, it's been really sickening to see what we know uh, to be true and what we see on CNN, sometimes almost complete fabrication, um, you know, and, and, and the typical use of, you know, humanitarian, propagandized humanitarian claims um, of, of genocide, they're claiming that that is being committed by the Ethiopian government, which, you know, the United Nations has uh, investigated, fully investigated. And while while saying that there's been atrocities committed on both sides, that there was no genocide. But this, this bill is basically using those kind of ludicrous claims as as a pretext for a political goal. And, 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 and you know, we have consensus in our community that this political goal is to bring back the TPLF into power against the wish and will of the Ethiopian people. Because, you know, currently the, the folks that are in power um, are more um, independent and, and pan-African um, and, and also um, have not really been, um, you know, like the, the puppet like the TPLF was. Um, so, but that's, that's what the dynamic is. Um, what you hear on the media is all about, you know, and, and with the sanction bills, it says, you know, you know, peace, reconciliation and all this um, flowery words. But really, when you read it, it's a sanctions bill that is going to put a poor country into even a worse position just because there is this entity 
that that the West wants to bring back to power on top of the people, against the people's wish. So it is a regime change effort, basically. Yeah, and I appreciate you clarifying that, uh, Nebu. I mean, it seems that almost from the very beginning of the conflict, there's been a kind of information warfare aspect uh, uh, to what we're seeing in Ethiopia, Eritrea, and uh, the Horn of Africa. And uh, when we talk about these latest sanctions, I mean, this is not even, um, you know, uh, uh, the only uh, sanctions issue or, or economic issue, perhaps, would be more precise, that we've seen the U.S. aim at Ethiopia in recent history. I mean, back in September of uh, uh, last year, uh, Ethiopia was suspended from the African Growth and Opportunity Act, or AGOA. And I mean, for whatever um, criticisms uh, people may have of it, I think uh, removing it is something that actually stands to to harm uh, uh, people in Ethiopia as well. And so you just described um, this as a kind of regime change effort, Nebu. And I, I was hoping you could sort of explain why the U.S. is interested in regime change in that way and why is it seemingly engaging in this kind of destabilizing activity, not just for, uh, you know, Ethiopia and Eritrea, but I think, you know, for the Horn uh, in general? Yeah. Um, and, and, and you know, that's the million dollar question, right? Um, if you want to help Africa, if you want to help any country, you would focus on capacity building uh, but not demand the compliance and not intrusion into their internal politics. The tone from the United States right now is like, it's almost like the wild, wild west. You either comply or they will try to break you into submission. That's the type of, you know, to, to us, uh, the, the uh, institutionalized racism that comes out in policy and in practice at the global scale and how they're engaging with Africa. You know, they don't come with respect. They come in with like a wrecking ball that's there to show you how primitive you are and how your ways are wicked and how savage you are. And, hey, we're the civilized one. And this is how you should operate your government. This is how you operate your society. There's a complete lack of respect for indigenous knowledge and indigenous ways of life. <clears throat> so from this perspective, uh, what we've often seen and the, the case in Ethiopia with the TPLF, it's a minority group. Uh, that that comes from the Tigray region that represents about 6% of the Ethiopian population. They've managed to divide the country along ethnicity, uh, politicize uh, people's tribes into ethnic ethnicity, uh, rearrange the entire country of Ethiopia into an ethnic federation, um, which has really turned people against each other because suddenly your your ethnicity became, became the politics. And these are the policies that TPLF was was running, uh, and with complete backing from the United States uh, for one way, one reason or another. But most, you know, likely for being a proxy in the area, particularly playing a role in in the war against terrorism. Right now, the current Ethiopian government does not want terrorism. They want to fight terrorism as well. They can be a partners in that. Al Shabaab is a threat for everyone. But there is a whole lot of other baggage that comes with it where uh, you really don't have any um, say and in, in, in so many things that you basically have to comply to whatever the United States says. And the reason for this regime changes is that, you know, regimes that, that are compliance, uh, that basically uh, don't resist, um, you know, are, are supported. But, you know, when governments um, or, or leaders 
that are resistance to that, that are more, you know, in line with the people's need and, and, and don't jump when they're told to jump. Uh, you know, there's oftentimes uh, the West supports the rebel groups um, or, you know, sanctions them or use, um, you know, humanitarian causes as a pretext, whether it's true or not, uh, media propaganda. But one way or another, uh, unleash a hybrid warfare to uh, force a regime change, uh, even if it meant uh, working up the public to work against, uh, to rise up against the, their own government. So, you know, I'm not saying that the African governments are perfect. The Ethiopian government is certainly not perfect. Uh, you know, there's, you know, grievances and things that they need to improve on. But what the Ethiopian people are capable of solving their own issues, discussing their own issues, um, and, and working towards democracy and, and the African way and their own indigenous knowledge and indigenous way of life, not necessarily uh, by getting this Western template imposed on them against their will or, or things that really don't work with the culture. So basically, you know, in my opinion, it is about forcing compliance into the Western standard and the Western way of living. Yeah, and last thing I wanted to ask, Nebi, you, you mentioned uh, a little earlier about um, how the resistance to a lot of this is sort of more Pan-African in nature. And I feel like when we look at trends across the continent, uh, that, that definitely seems to be a part of the dynamic. And so how do you see this kind of Pan-African scope as being important when looking at the issues facing Ethiopia, Eritrea, and the Horn? Yeah, there is a resurgence of Pan-Africanism happening right now. It's almost like we're back in the 60s. And, you know, more and more Africans are realizing that our only way out is through unity, through Pan-Africanism. Uh, with social media and, and, you know, modern technology has made it easier for people, you know, video conference, Zoom, things like that, for people to connect and share their pains and, and and as more and more of that happening, people, Africans are realizing that um, our problem is the same, similar, and, and, and there is the, there's a root cause, and that is, um, you know, interference in the, 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 the continent and, and domination um, of, of the people uh, from the West, and that, you know, Africans are more and more choosing to take their own destiny into their own hand and define their own f- uh, um, future, um, because... Africa is the richest continent on the planet. There's no reason that the people should be the poorest. Um, nearly over half of the world resources, whether it's the cell phone uh, you're using, the car you're driving, uh, you know, the jewelry you're wearing, uh, more than half of the items the, the, that, that was used to create that and to enable your lifestyle here comes from Africa. So there's no reason that we should be living in poverty. Africa should be hungry or thirsty, uh, and 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 that uh, things need to change, um, and Africa needs to uh, use its own wealth and 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 uplift its people out of poverty. And for that, um, you know, this political intrusions and and conflicts that are sponsored by people outside of the continent need to stop. And the people must unite and and embrace Pan-Africanism for that to come true. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nebu, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. 
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the need for social housing here in the United States. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ryan Cooper, managing editor of The American Prospect. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And uh, Ryan, of course, here in the United States, uh, we find ourselves in a kind of a housing crisis with uh, the prices of housing and rents uh, steadily going up an issue uh, seemingly exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, you recently published a piece uh, with the prospect entitled How to Solve the Housing Crisis with One Weird Trick when you were sort of talking about the advantages of social housing and how it can uh, go a ways to address this country's housing issues. And so to begin, uh, could you first sort of break down uh, what social housing is and uh, how do you think it can be perhaps deployed as a tool for some of the problems facing the U.S. right now? Yeah, so social housing is different from traditional American public housing in that it would be available to everybody. So you're your typical like public housing project in the United States, it's you, there are like real strict income requirements. You basically have to be like fairly poor to qualify. There's usually a huge wait list, and uh, the disadvantages of that is that you it doesn't really scale. You know, you need a subsidy for every single unit because the people are paying rents that are way below the uh, you know necessary funding to, um, you know, maintain the building. And so in addition to, you know, it being hard to produce lots of units, there can, and often does end up being a serious maintenance backlog. You know, we've seen public uh, housing projects, which were fine as long as they were funded up through like the 1960s and 1970s. But then, you know, when the Republicans get power, they cut the money off. And, uh, you know, these places just fall into, into disrepair. The, the American public housing stock isn't that big, but there's still a maintenance backlog of something like $80 billion. Whereas social housing, basically you get to, you take some of the um, units, you know, you set them aside for deep subsidy. Maybe some are sort of in the middle and then you have some market rate and that gives you a surplus that you can use to cover the, the maintenance uh, and, and, you know, uh, 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 operational requirements of the, of the building. And so, yeah, not only do you solve the, the maintenance issue, you can also basically build these as, uh, uh, as long as you have uh, land. You, know, you don't even have to, if you don't want to, appropriate any money at all uh, from the government. You could just float a bond against the future rental incomes of the uh, uh, the project and use that to pay off uh, the bond over, you know, 20, 30 years as usual, and basically just get tons and tons and tons of housing supply really quickly. And then it also, finally, uh, is explicitly aimed at all segments of the housing market simultaneously. So, you know, you get a lot of YIMBY people saying you know, that that's yes in my backyard, by the way, that we need to you know, uh, streamline our zoning regulations so that we can build more housing. And, you know, they make a good case that 
there's a real serious shortage of housing in so many American cities. That's just true. But whenever you build a brand new building, a lot of that, that tends to be because it's new. It's, it's at the luxury market at the top and you have to wait like 20 or 30 years for it to become older. And then it, then it kind of filters down to become cheaper if you have like a pretty saturated market. Whereas this is as a matter of how the policy is set up, you have affordable and permanently affordable units. Then you have some in the middle and then you have some at the top. So, you know, that that addresses the supply shortage everywhere that it's needed, which is across the entire income spectrum, basically, in these really, really expensive uh, cities like, uh, you know, San Francisco, New York City, and even, you know, shoot, places like Atlanta now are suffering huge increases in the, in rents and the cost of housing, or Phoenix. Um, and so, you know, it's just kind of a magic bullet. It does, um, it solves all of these problems simultaneously. And in a way, uh, uh, one thing I forgot to mention, and I'll shut up, but the uh, you don't concentrate poverty like you do with the public housing project. I mean, you're taking all the most low-income people and putting them in you know, a particular location, and that is associated with all kinds of social ills, you know, crime and, and like poor public services and stuff. And like this, you, know, you end up uh, socioeconomically integrating the, the community so that people are you know, living next to each other. And you don't, you know, have the sort of classic uh, redlining segregation uh, housing approach that that tends to happen in this country where you just sort of stuff all the poor non-white people in a particular uh, neighborhood and forget about them. And so, you know, we, we, we should have we should be doing this yesterday. Yeah. And, and it, it's interesting that what social housing is sounds like what developers and many municipalities claim, um, you know, mixed level or mixed use housing is when they build a new development and they say they're setting aside uh, a certain percentage of units for affordable housing, but that's never the case. I mean, how does uh, social housing fit into also kind of addressing the, the stereotypes that come with public housing, because we know there's this terrible stigma, much of it uh, racialized uh, about uh, toward people who live in public housing. So how does social housing address that? And is there anywhere in the country where this is actually being done since, you know, the idea of these, you know, multi mixed use housing developments really is not social housing at all. So we're not getting what they're telling us they're giving us. Yeah, the the difference I would say the key difference between these kind of uh, mixed income projects that you see developers propose is that the government owns it. That the city, you know, typically, but you, you know, you any level of government could do this. Um, you know, the the way that they they do this with um, uh, private developers, it's like the classic kind of neoliberal incentivizing the private market to do the thing that you want and. You know, the issue with that is like you get these tax credits, you know, through the, the, the federal tax code, the LIHTC or whatever, low income housing tax credit. And, you know, it's inefficient. It takes a long time. And, you know, then you have the need for the for a profit of the private uh, developer to be built in. And that's going to mean higher rents uh, than it would otherwise. Whereas if the if the uh, government owns it, then they don't have all they need to cover is their cost. And so they can keep the, the, the rents down as low as possible. There's no need to, like, jack people up. And then, you know, with a lot of these affordable units, like the way the contract is written, 
um, you know, the private ones we, I, I, we've been talking about, that's, uh, it's like a affordable for 20 years or something like that, you know, and then it ages out of the light tech contract and then it, whoever owns it can charge whatever rent they, they want as high as they possibly can. And, you know, if the, if the government owns it, then it can just permanently control it. And it could say, no, it's going to be affordable forever. As far as the stigma question, I mean, I think that's basically downstream of the way that uh, public housing is exclusively for poor people. You know, poor people are disproportionately black and brown. You know, not all of them, and, uh, but, you know, a substantial chunk. And so, you know, the, it, it ends up being like a kind of uh, de facto segregation. And, and the fact that these buildings are, are in such bad shape a lot of times uh, only compounds the problem. And I think the way that you address that stigma is you, is you do, you do integration. Basically, if you have, you know, people of all different, you know, uh, uh, races and backgrounds all living together in like a, a sort of mixed neighborhood, uh, it wouldn't have that same kind of, of stigma, you know, that, that, um, this is when you, you know, you look at studies that will, when uh, racial integration, uh, has a, Adequately positive effect on those test scores of uh, African American children, and the reason is that like this is that that they got access to the resources of like the white community. Basically, you know, they've been under segregation, trying to hoard it all for their own families. But like, if you just jam people together, then it's like, well, we're in the same boat, and so we all better have like the same, you know, good uh, housing stock. And I think that, you know, I think it would. Uh, it's kind of. A uh, little picture in miniature of the type of society we're trying to create, you know, egalitarian, everybody living sort of cheek by jowl and not, you know, little sort of de facto segregated enclaves of rich people and poor people. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like housing is one of those um, issues where, you know, we see class and race just sort of uh, inextricably uh, bound up together. And so many of uh, like the issues we're discussing, like in terms of poverty and uh, wages and things like that, and how a lot of that is rooted in, you know, racism and uh, uh, economic exploitation and things like this. I mean, which in a way kind of makes me wonder, right? I mean, why does why do you, is there such an aversion seemingly? to true uh, social housing in the United States. I mean, whenever we discuss it uh, here on the show, I mean, I mean, generally it seems that, you know, a lot of these developers and um, the local governments and governments at different levels that are sympathetic towards them um, always seem to be more interested in, you know, uh, frankly, making a book than actually housing people. And then, you know, uh, particularly another uh I think consequence of the pandemic was this kind of um, explosion in, in homelessness and things like that. And so, I mean, it seems as if there's sort of a number of sort of uh, systemic factors that roll into uh, uh, housing. And it just makes me wonder why, you know, governments at different levels don't seem to do more to have a more sustainable model for this. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's exactly that history of racism. You know, the history of housing is a history of racism in this country. And it's whenever, you know, uh, we propose integrating the community, it's a threat to the status and privilege of the white people. And white liberals can be quite terrible on this type of thing, even if they claim otherwise. 
And the other factor is just that like home home values, it's like this foundation of middle class wealth. And when you're talking about building tons and tons of units, that may put downward pressure on the housing market and and slow the inflation of home values. And so people are going to resist that, too. But even it's you know, it's like if you have this uh, problem homelessness, housing prices out of control. It's caused by lack of supply. But then it's like at the same time, we're supposed to be building this. You know, it's a very contradictory uh, uh, objective where we're trying to increase home prices and bring them down at the same time. But, you know, it's a solution that, that can work. Yeah, it's definitely a solution that can work. It works in other countries. This is actually pretty common uh, in in other countries. How common is social housing in other developed nations? And I mean, isn't this just another reason why in this country we should not only be ashamed that in the richest country I think the planet has ever seen, this country won't even spend money to house people? Yeah, the uh, there's um, examples, you know, Finland has some, Sweden had the, maybe the most aggressive example in the 1960s and 70s, they built a million uh, housing units in a space of, a space of about a decade, which in its, in a country as small as Sweden is a huge number. Uh, Vienna has a classic example, the, the Karl Marxhof built by the socialist uh, government in like the 1920s. It's still one of the biggest like apartment buildings in Austria. Uh, this huge, you know, thing circling like an entire city block. And it's st- it's still a beautiful building. You know, it was built by these idealistic, you know, uh, reform guys who wanted to, you know, they wanted their um, their socialist housing system to be really beautiful and have all sorts of amenities and stuff. And it's still great. People still live in it to this day. Um, and so, yeah, you can you can find these examples all over the place. Uh, it's it's a it's an idea that occurs to anyone you know who's of that sort of background. Like, well, you know, if we're into collective control of you know the means of production or whatever, well, why shouldn't the the you know the people through their democratic government own the the housing stock and just provide it for for everyone? And it you know if if you take your time and and you know build nice buildings, it's something that can last for a century. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, April 4th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 202 
1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also get our shows, listen to us, and download us at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. We're streaming live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. You can still check us out on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM on your dial here in D.C. But wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. And uh, at the top of the hour today, Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has said that sanctions will not be enough uh, to respond to uh, what's being uh, alleged as uh, atrocities and mass killings uh, by Russian troops in the town of Buka, which is uh, near Kiev. And uh, the uh, mayor, and not to Federuk, who's the mayor of Buka, has said that uh, more than 300 people are dead as a result of this and that this happened before the Russian troops left the city. Um, the uh, Russian government is denying this, and uh, Kremlin spokesperson uh, Dmitry Peskov has said that the chronology and other such thing uh, of what happened in Buka didn't square with what the Ukraine government was saying. And according to him, experts at the Russian Ministry of Defense, quote, have identified signs of video fakes and various fakes. We would demand that many international leaders do not rush to sweeping accusations and at least listen to our arguments. Uh, Russia is also continuing to press for um, a meeting to convene at the United Nations Security Council to discuss uh, what Russia is describing as, quote, Ukrainian provocations in Buka and uh, uh, things like this. So that will continue to unfold. I mean, given the sort of uh, difference in narratives, and I think some serious questions raised about, um, you know, what happened in uh, Mariupol and things like this, uh, I think this is worthwhile for a number of reasons. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Mr. James Early, former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and a board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for enjoying. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, uh, today, Mr. Early uh, marks about 54 years uh, since the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated, murdered in broad daylight while he was engaged in a labor struggle, uh, chiefly among us sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. I feel like the fact that, you know, King died while um, in the midst of a labor struggle is something that is often missing from his story, and particularly when we see all the labor activity happening now in the United States, the recent uh, unionization of Amazon and Starbucks and all these other efforts, I, I think, factor into that. And of course, we also know towards the end of his life that, uh, you know, Dr. King was becoming increasingly vocal about, you know, U.S. foreign policy and about war and particularly about what was happening in Vietnam. And this is what caused a drop in uh, popularity for Martin Luther King. And, you know, he didn't get that same kind of fawning treatment from uh, certain elements of the liberal establishment and things like that. It's this whole idea of 
basically you should stay in your lane of domestic civil rights, but, you know, don't mess around with stuff outside the U.S. borders. And I think we see ripple effects of that kind of thinking even today. But I'm wondering your uh, thoughts, Mr. Uh, Early, as someone who's seen uh, quite a bit from uh, movements, both those in the U.S. and outside, you know, several decades after the fact of uh, Martin Luther King's um, assassination, while, you know, the U.S. is yet um, involved, you know, not only in a war in terms of uh, the Ukraine uh, proxy for Russia, but we know that the U.S. is either directly or indirectly involved in really countless conflicts and war across the globe. And so I'm just wondering what you think that, you know, King's sort of, you know, morally based, uh, you know, anti-war and also critical uh, of capitalism and how that sort of view holds value today in the 21st century? Well, King um, was a very important figure, arguably the most important um, public space figure uh, of his time in terms of direct uh, integrated engagement uh, with marginalized and working people, particularly black people, uh, manifested uh, with a kind of universality of all oppressed and dispossessed people in the United States uh, through the Poor People's Campaign uh, and um, the integrity uh, of, of, of labor, uh, remembering those signs, I am a man, uh, where he was engaged in the uplift of all of marginalized people, uh, not relinquishing the particularity of being um, a black American. Uh, that is still a crucible or a test case uh, in today's America. And as we see um, the U.S. having uh, pushed uh, Ukraine um, with NATO into a confrontation with Russia, and then no way to exonerate the horrible, inhumane, um, vicious uh, violence being perpetrated uh, by the Russian army, uh, not just Putin, but by the Russian army against the Ukrainian people. Uh, King figures largely in our view, um, and, and uh, as he said, um, he came off the sidelines and broke silence because at a certain point, he, that silence becomes betrayal. Uh, the clergy for, for concern uh, that invited him to the Riverside speech, that was a line that he took from their declaration and said that uh, despite the agony um, of confronting Johnson's policy in Vietnam and confronting uh, those within the black community, who refused to take a position against Vietnam, like the NAACP that criticized King, uh, or the so-called liberal Washington Post that uh, really tried to crucify him. Um, remembering what's going on right now um, in the nation and in the world, uh, King said, you know, how can I say to these uh, uh, unemployed, uneducated black men who uh, will rebel, who will go into riotous behavior uh, to be nonviolent when we are sending those same young men into Vietnam uh, to die with other white working class men that cannot sit together when they return to America. All of those things play out when we see the, the willful ignorance of what is happening against the Palestinians every day and as we see Joe Biden and as we see the black voices of the U.N. and the U.S. military and the vice presidency uh, embrace 
um, uh, migrants from Ukraine um, who are fully clothed. And then we think about King's speech, Breaking the Silence, where he talks about the shirtless people in Latin America uh, because of the alliance of the U.S. with the elites of Latin America. Uh, one of the other implications, and I'll stop on this point to dialogue with you, is that uh, we have to ask ourselves now, uh, despite the, the critique of Russia and the horrible atrocity that they are committing against Ukrainians, why is it that NATO and the U.S. continue to put uh, more arms and to push uh, Zelensky and continued confrontation as millions of people have to flee? Uh, what King did was he called for peace negotiations uh, with the North Vietnamese. And he said, this is a time of revolution and that we must stand with people who are fighting for their dignity and their rights. And he called for the U.S. to stop sending arms to Laos and to Thailand at the time. And we must call for the same thing. Stop arming uh, the NATO frontline states against uh, Russia and uh, really spiraling this conflict further into uh, the kind of indecent uh, warfare. King pointed out, you know, all war was evil. So King resonates very much, and the liberal community is still trapped, both black, as the NAACP was, and white liberals, as was the Washington Post, who uh, come on television with all the sympathy and empathy, and then are blind and deaf to what goes on every day against Palestinians, or what goes on every day in the displacement and the murder of Afro-Colombians or the situation with Haitians. So that's the context in which I think people should go back and read King's Breaking the Silence speech, uh, written by by Vincent Harding, by the way. I never met Dr. King, although I was a student at Morehouse. He was not very much talked about at Morehouse when I was there. But I did spend a lot of time with Vincent Harding, uh, who wrote the Vietnam speech for, for Dr. King. And, you know, Dr. Early, the, I think... You know, this period of time with this recent conflict um, is is a really interesting reflection of King's legacy because in some ways it is the same thing, right? It is the same struggle. But in other ways, it's a little bit different because I feel like the ability of the United States, uh, its media apparatus, the State Department-controlled uh, media outlets and their ability to completely erase everything that happened that the U.S. and the EU and, and NATO uh, did in Ukraine, starting from, well, probably before 2014, but certainly starting from the coup in 2014, erasing an eight-year civil war, ignoring all of the you know neo-Nazi units and fascists and a whole right-wing fascist political party that, that actually holds seats in uh, the Rada, the uh, Ukrainian Congress, as it were. I mean, I think that there is a an aspect of this current conflict in Ukraine that because so much information or propaganda that was provided, that has been provided and is provided by U.S. media outlets is very, very skewed toward painting Putin in particular as the aggressor and and quite evil without 
uh, interrogating any of the actions of the U.S. and the EU or any particular president, since people want to make this about one person, Vladimir Putin, there's no interrogation of Barack Obama. There's no interrogation of uh, Joe Biden, no interrogation of Victoria Nuland, of uh, uh, John McCain, and all of their roles in creating this conflict. I, I do wonder if people are really able to connect what King was saying in his very, very clear speech uh, in several of them about the history of the conflict in uh, Vietnam when, when we don't even have the facts, we're not getting the facts from corporate media about the history of what happened leading up to what's going on in Ukraine now. How, how do you see us being able to navigate that when we're literally being lied to? People are literally being lied to uh, in corporate media every single day. And then what led up to it? Well, one of the things now and, and 67, 68 is that this is the uh, of mass media, of um, massified uh, psychology, massified uh, identities. Uh, but the embryonic uh, dimensions of what we experience on a daily basis today were also quite evident uh, during the period in which King uh, was, was in, immersed with ordinary, everyday black people. I think it's really important for us to remember that King was called uh, by the civil rights uh, movement, by a Pullman car uh, porter, uh, to come and join what they had already organized, that he was he was being brought to serve a certain kind of task. He was not being brought to create a movement. The movement was already in, in, in motion. But the mass media uh, at, at the time was the opening of television, uh, which showed the horrendous inhumanity, the violence, the atrocities of white supremacy and the uh, failure of white liberals, the betrayal of white liberals. Um, the, but, so the press is doing the very same thing uh, from that era, but at a much more massified way now. You know, keep in mind that when King gave this speech, he pointed out that uh, a million Vietnamese had been killed uh, by this U.S. Uh, intervention, taking up the French colonial task after the French were kicked out, and that most of them were children. Um, and so that you know, the Joy Reads and the and the the other people and mass public media are being willfully ignorant. I heard Joy Reid a few weeks ago say that, why can't we do something about this Putin? Uh, after all, when the U.S. wants to move and then she referenced the assassination of Lumumba uh, as, as one of the things that, that shows what U.S. power is and why could it be exercised in the same way? So that we have a divided ideological, uh, uh, divided moral perspective now as we did uh, during that period of the Vietnam War. And I think we have to call a spade a spade in that regard and then ask ourselves, who are the people uh, of the, in the American public that really do understand what's going on? And that is where we must engage and help to mature uh, the strength of organization of those communities to fight against this power and to assume power uh, such that somewhere in the future uh, we will be able to prevent this kind of thing. So those are, those are some of the distinctions, and the, but the continuing correlation of underlying forces of hegemony 
uh, within the mass media, which uh, one of the things that has developed now that was not as developed then is that the bourgeois democratic struggle for full participation in American society now gives us multi-racial, uh, multi-gender voices uh, carrying on uh, the ways of the elite and, and uh, really pushing, in this case, the Ukrainians to continue uh, to suffer at the hands of a mightier force and millions of people being displaced and thousands of people being being killed. And so King stands forth to us to say, call, break the silence and call all of them out. Uh, for the contradictions that uh, are, are, that, that, that they are actually ex- exhibiting, that's leading uh, to more death in the case of Ukraine, and and more of the U.S. Uh, pushing war uh, uh, across th- that front uh, with Russia uh, as it continues to talk about bringing these groups into NATO, breaking uh, the the commitment that it made with the fall of the of the Soviet Union. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all of that history, I think, is is so uh, important and, and frankly, uh, completely missing from what we hear from the corporate owned media and from uh, the White House. And and I think that what you're raising, Mr. Early, is a big part of what's not being uh, communicated to the American people in terms of just what it means for uh, the U.S. to continue funneling all these weapons and all this support to the Ukraine military, not only knowing about the uh, uh, neo-Nazi and and other far-right and and fascist elements within those uh, uh, formations, but also the direct role it plays in exacerbating the pain of the Ukrainian people. But we're going to go to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. You know, Mr. Early, over the break, uh, we were talking about King and war and internationalism. I mean, it made me think of a couple of things. Number one, I feel like King is a great example of what you so often remind us of, Mr. Early, when we have you on, in the sense that these great figures that we look to, these great individuals that we find throughout history, I mean, number one, you know, they don't fall from the sky. Not only are they created by conditions, but they're put up by organizations and by movements. Uh, You know what I mean? I feel like that's uh, another aspect of sort of how we hear King. I I think there's a number of issues, Uh, certainly uh, many of them political in terms of how King is communicated to us in the United States um, up until this day. I think it's, you know, noteworthy that he is really seen all around the world, literally sort of an international symbol for, uh, uh, justice and things uh, like that. So not only is he one of many people who was the product 
of movements and, and of struggle in terms of how he gained that prominence, but also his uh, internationalist look. I mean, we were discussing his uh, his anti-war views as it concerns Vietnam, sort of relating it to uh, the U.S. and NATO and what's happening now uh, with the war in Ukraine. And you also mentioned uh, uh, Haiti. And I mean, this is a place that has also been going through some uh, labor struggles. I mean, as a part of... <laughs> what seems to be a kind of countrywide uh, uh, resistance that's been happening for a couple of years that was first sort of pushing against the, uh, uh, you know, leadership and presidency and then, you know, de facto sort of U.S.-backed puppet presidency of Jovenel Moise, now assassinated. He, uh, of course, now under the leadership of Dr. Ariel Henri and even, you know, how much he may have known or not known about uh, certain things, I think, remains to be seen. But I bring this up, Mr. Early, because, I mean, we know historically that the U.S., uh, because of the colonial relationship that it's maintained with countries like Haiti, has had a hand in the conditions of labor there and, and keeping wages low and all those sorts of things. And I feel like this is so important, particularly as there are elements uh, within the United States that, you know, they don't see why they should care about the, the war in Ukraine or what it has to do with them. Well, at the same time, the Biden administration is taking all this money that rightfully belongs to them, that rightfully belongs to us uh, in this country for all of the myriad issues that we have, but is instead sending it to yet another war. And so, you know, uh, looking at it from that uh, uh, perspective, Mr. Early, in terms of the internationalism and the importance of developing organizations and developing movements that then develop leaders seems like it's really uh, important uh, when we, you know, find the U.S. in a crisis point on so many levels like we find it today. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right to point out the internationalism of, of King. Uh, there is a quote somewhere that um, he says, uh, you know, that we are Africans and the Africans should never, I wish I could have the full quote at my command, but that Africans on the continent should not ever forget that. He, he, uh, he was attuned to the 1957 first uh, overthrow of colonialism with Osafi uh, Fokwami uh, and Kuma and 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 that movement in, 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 in Ghana. Uh, I'm just looking at uh, the break of the silent speech, and I just want to quote one part where he says, during the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression, which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela. This is King in, 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 in 1967. Uh, quote, this need to maintain social stability of our investment accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia and why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. And he said, you know, we must stand on the side of this world revolution against injustice. Um, he called, he says, you know, how can we talk about uh, equality here in the United States but then deny, quote-unquote, the brotherhood of, of mankind, unquote, uh, and and killing uh, Vietnamese, as you said, uh, at least a million Vietnamese, uh, most of them children. But I think the one thing that I have had to uh, come to grapple with, and um, I know Jackie Luke Miner's heart will be warmed because she comes out of this experience in a more organic way. We must deal with the fact that Cain was deeply was a deeply seated Christian. He was a Mennonite. He was a militant pacifist uh, who called people out. 
Uh, he thought in revolutionary ways in the sense of this speech. Uh, it is noted that Vincent Harding wrote the speech, but King understood that he had to draw on others who had command of areas that he did not have command of and that he reserved the right to be the editor. You know, he was charged uh, with plagiarism uh, because of the way that he sewed together the perspectives, uh, the threads of truth and enlightenment that he drew from various people. But this came out of a deep abiding faith. And I can remember as an undergraduate at Morehouse, in fact, uh, it was Vincent Harding who sent me a note after I'd been thrown out of Morehouse. He says, I hear you need a job. Come see me. I have a job at the Martin Luther King Center for uh, Social Change, uh, Martin Luther King Documentation Project, and then later brought me up to the Institute of the Black World. But it was out of this, this Christian fervor, this need to validate himself in relationship to how he engaged with the aspirations and the needs of, of, of others, uh, as was the case with Martin Luther King. Uh, that that uh, issue of religion, since we are a highly religious nation and a highly religious Black community, we have to, again, uh, renew our connection uh, to those uh, uh, fighters who come out of that Christian faith and who bring light uh, of truth uh, to the evils that are being perpetuated by the elites of the society of all colors and all genders, I must underscore. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely a deep part of Dr. King's legacy. And, and honestly, you know, being able to connect those things that God does hate that are, are actually in the Bible, the injustice committed against the weak, the oppressed, uh, the poor, that's definitely a part of uh, the faith tradition, although that's not what the right-wing conservatives who call themselves Christians uh, talk about. But it's in there, <laughs> not, you know, not oppressing people and caring for the poor and all that kind of stuff. You know, so when we talk about the, this legacy of Dr. King, Mr. Early, that is so, I mean, it makes, he should be well-respected and should have always been well-respected. But let's not forget that he was not respected very much uh, toward the end of his life, especially after he spoke out against Vietnam. But he was growing increasingly more unpopular the more he criticized capitalism and this American society as it existed. And and I think you mentioned a little earlier that he wasn't talked about much uh, at uh, at Morehouse, which kind of isn't a, isn't a surprise, but I'm wondering, because a couple of people in the chat were asking about that, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat on Rumble, uh, about that, why he wasn't talked about much uh, at Morehouse since, you know, he is and, and was such a... A, a, a seminal figure in the struggle for liberation for African uh, Black people in this country? Well, you know, my, my dear alma mater, I mean, I was thrown out of Morehouse. Uh, my degree was suspended for a year because of um, we were involved in the takeover uh, of the Board of Trustees with D Daddy King, Martin Luther King's father, um, there, and um, Abdullah Kalima, Gerald McWhorter, um, uh, African-American um, Marxist, an extraordinary uh, scholar, particularly in uh, documenting uh, the Black studies, 
uh, was involved with A.B. Spellman, who is in in Washington, D.C., now in his mid-80s, who had come out of the Black Arts Movement with, uh, with uh, a, a Mary uh, Baraka. Um, these institutions are have not been um, radical revolutionary institutions. They have been very important democratic social change institutions, keeping in mind that the black church is the bedrock of uh, African-American education. This is where our preschools, our elementary schools, our high schools, in fact, Morehouse grew out of one of those high schools, as did many um, historically black institutions. And they were religiously oriented institutions because it was in the black church. And I remember Vincent Harding saying, uh, my mother never thought of God as white. She was not worshiping a white God, but she was worshiping a God. Now, while that is outside of my area of, of conviction, um, I understood the profundity of that. These institutions, by and large, do not embrace that. Um, they are pegged along uh, who will uh, achieve in bourgeois society. And, of course, they are really concerned about basic democratic rights. Uh, but we do not hear them standing forth around Haiti. Uh, we do not hear them standing forth as King called for in the in, beyond Vietnam was the name of the speech, breaking the silence beyond Vietnam, where he talked about South Africa and Mozambique and Guatemala and Peru, saying that these are rising areas. And so we have to challenge these institutions to be on really the revolutionary side of building a new America. You know, as King said at the end of his life, and Harry Belafonte loves to quote this, uh, Dr. King says, you know, I think we are trying to integrate a burning house. Uh, he realized that it was not just full citizenship, full participation in things as they are, but things had to be radically changed. And this Vietnam speech calls for that. And we have to challenge these institutions uh, about this. Uh, as, you know, Howard University, on the one hand, hires very high-profile, very important uh, black scholars, but at the same time, uh, you know, hides the fact of, of it's, 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 uh, what it's doing with its basic uh, uh, educational staff of, of not giving them the kind of security, uh, job security and income uh, necessary. And we have to expose those. We have to take a cabral a kind of point of view and tell no lies and claim no easy victories and tell the truth to, to our people about this. So this is a struggle. It's a broad ideological struggle in racial and moral terms, and it's fundamentally a class struggle uh, that it is the least of us, the working people, that this has got to be pegged around. And so we have to challenge uh, MSNBC and all these black and Latino and LGBTQT voices who embrace uh, the system and who embrace what is happening with uh, these millions of people who are having to leave Ukraine, but turn a blind eye and a deaf ear on Haitians and Palestinians or on the homelessness. Uh, just walk through Washington, D.C. and see the increased number of white beggars that you see out on the streets today. And King pointed out in that Vietnam speech, he says, you know, there is a correlation uh, between uh, civil rights and human rights global-wise, the poverty program that he said had been so hopeful in uplifting both black and white workers, he points that out in his speech, uh, was then overturned, and this money was all put into the military to kill these brown people. He shows the racialized nature of that. 
And so we have to continue on programs uh, like yours uh, to bring back uh, the truth of light of this kind of analysis and the social construct that King was, not the individual construct. And Putin, by the way, not to be equated with Dr. King, is also a social construct. He's not out there by himself. There is an organized group of governance people uh, that take on this battle. And so just trying to concentrate this around one person is a typical U.S. imperial uh, focus of demonizing as they tried to demonize King, as they tried to demonize uh, um, Malcolm. And so this is what we can draw uh, from breaking the silence, um, the Vietnam speech that uh, Dr. King gave that was written um, by Dr. Vincent Harding. Yeah, and that's important to note, um, the sort of individualizing of, uh, of Vladimir Putin or Muammar Gaddafi or uh, Saddam Hussein or whatever and what have you. I actually think, you know, regardless of how one uh, considers these individuals, as you note, uh, Mr. Early, that, you know, they too are sort of these uh, social constructions. And it's, it's useful for U.S. imperialism to, you know, paint this picture like there's all of these atrocities that are happening at the behest of just this one person kind of sitting on the throne, you know, pointing and ordering uh, everything that's uh, uh, happening. It, it's, it's a thought killing sort of thing that works really well uh, here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, to me, you know, it, it, it's the most intense uh, sort of campaign of this kind that, that I think we've seen in, in, in some time, although it happens a lot. Um, I don't think we've seen it to to quite this level in some time. And I think it's also important that you raise how um, how what we're discussing is a class struggle. And this was something that King and that uh, movement were uh, they seem pretty aware of, you know, in the sense that you have uh, uh, Martin King, a uh, pretty you know middle class construction, someone who threw in his lot with uh, uh, the poor and working elements of his community. You know what I mean? Because I think he recognized that although, um, you know, white supremacy, racism, Jim Crow impacted, impacted black people in a sense, regardless of their class position, but he understood about how the, um, the issue of economic exploitation particularly impacted certain stratas of not just black America, but all of the United States. And he is someone who both believed, spoke and acted in a way where he truly believed in coalition building. He truly believed in, um, you know, a, a, a multiracial or what some would call a multinational sort of struggle. I think the uh, Resurrection City project that took place after his death here in D.C. is um, a kind of microcosm of that. And it, I think, also, too, has a relevance for today. I mean, as we've been discussing on the show, I mean, you know, just these fantastic uh, amounts of money. I mean, just gross, obscene amounts of money, billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, going to war while, you know, there's 140 million people living at or near the poverty line right here in the U.S. And when we talk about the faith of a Martin Luther King, I, I do think that's important as well because, I mean, that was kind of the 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 wellspring of his whole moral compass, if you will. And that moral compass is so much of what drove uh, his political work. And we've been kind of talking on the show, Mr. Early, about the role of 
faith and religion and how the movement should address itself to it. Because I think there tends to be, um, at least on the left in the U.S., sometimes an aversion to religion because of people's personal experience with faith and things like that, which is understandable. But our whole thing is if, if you really hope to organize alongside the ruling, excuse me, alongside the working class and think you're somehow going to avoid the question of religion or spirituality, well, I mean, you're, you're, you're fooling yourself. But so much of that is what drove, I think, what we know as a civil rights movement. And even in the, um, the black power movement, which wasn't religiously as based uh, as a civil rights movement, but certainly I think had its own kind of spirit in that way. So how do you think we sort of grapple with that kind of issue, with, with sensibilities around religion and faith sort of being what they are today in terms of how, you know, it, it shows up in the movement? Well, I, I think one of the key issues is uh, to see the historically evolved and organized trends within religion, and there's always been competing trends. Uh, the dominant trend uh, talks about, you know, the afterlife and, and love thy enemy uh, and that kind of But then there's the liberate Retory uh, trend, uh, uh, particularly within Black theology or in liberation theology in Latin America, in which private worship, private perspectives about the universe and one's relationship to uh, an omnipotent uh, power or being uh, is not confused with uh, accommodating the injustices uh, here on Earth. In fact, it is directed against those injustices. And this was a part of the liberation theology of the James Collins and the Martin Luther Kings, uh, or Harriet Tubman, for that matter, uh, that directed the force of their God, of their belief, uh, towards issues of injustice, not towards issues of accommodation. Um, not to, you know, the, this refrain of speaking truth to power. They not only spoke to truth to power, but they had a perspective of becoming the power of truth. Uh, and, and so that I think we have to uplift uh, that, that liberation trend uh, within, in this case, Black Christianity. Uh, we have to recognize that uh, it not only happens in Black Christianity, but with regard to uh, King's speech at Riverside Church of Breaking the Silence Beyond Vietnam, uh, he was invited largely by white clergy who later became the Meiji anti-war movement, the core of the anti-war movement against Vietnam and the society. And so that there are these liberatory trends uh, within religion. Uh, it was a Buddhist monk, um, uh, ha, ha, I can't pronounce his last name, uh, that King actually put up for the peace prize the following year, although they did not give a prize that following year, uh, that uh, also helped to bring King into the movement against the war in Vietnam. King was also keenly aware of the position of another religious figure, although we don't think of him as a religious figure because he was the world champion, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, who says, I'm not going over to kill brown people for white people who kill black people in the, in the United States. I mean, just the basic reductions logic of this being not only not being sensible, but also being immoral. But it was out of his Islamic uh, grounding uh, that he saw a bigger good. And so those everyday trends are before us. Uh, Reverend Barbara today uh, 
and 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 the campaign that he is involved in with thousands of people of multiracial, I should point out, multi-ethnic across the country. These are the people that we have to uplift uh, in our public and political education, as I often describe, um, by any means necessary and other such programs. They are not just informational. They are political educational, and they're not just dialogical, uh, you are us speaking to an audience, but they are multi-logical because it opens up the lines and people bring in their perspectives, their logic, and it is out of the enlightened engagement, uh, sometimes debate of those issues and ideas, that we find higher levels of unity even as we continue to struggle about differences. This is the tradition of Christianity that Dr. King was embedded in uh, with ordinary everyday people who walked off those plantations, um, some not being able to read or write and to express their humanity, uh, to express as workers, I am a man and I deserve to be treated with integrity, and to read, I am a man in the social context of the historical context that it was expressed, that it was speaking also to the humanity of all of those extraordinary strong black women who upheld and still uphold today uh, the African-American Christian church. Definitely. We're, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Mr. James Early is here. And, uh, you know, Mr. Early, as we sort of have a look around uh, the globe, right, and see all the different struggles that are happening in so many different ways and U.S. and Canada and Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa and Europe and uh, the Middle East. Just wherever you go on this earth, I feel like you see a struggle happening uh, uh, somewhere. And when we've been speaking of King, one thing that I've come to appreciate about him uh, uh, in terms of his thinking and his ideology is, you know, he described the, you know, the struggling people of the world as being you know, clothed in, in a single garment of destiny. And the language there is poetic, but it's, it's substantive, right? And, and there's a real truth to that because I think no matter what, ultimately we are all on this planet and, and are more connected, uh, I think, more than we think. And I don't mean that in like an intangible kumbaya sort of way. I mean, that literally the operations of um, uh, global capital and, and all these sorts of things, I think, tie people together in a, a certain way. But the uh, system that's at the root of that, the capitalist system, is one that is based uh, in exploitation to the point where just about anything that we consume can somehow be traced to somebody's exploitation somebody's pain because how this system is sort of 
designed to rob people. And so when we're talking about the war in Ukraine or sanctions against Venezuela or political unrest in Haiti or, you know, what's happening in Iran or, or Syria or the DPRK or, or all these places um, around the world. Why right? It's ultimately connected because we're impacted by the same system. And so for me, having a kind of clarity around the contradictions of capitalism and imperialism is so important and was such a um, impactful tool for so many leaders throughout the years, uh, King included, that, you know, I think we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we sort of, um, if we were derelict in that sense and only had a kind of uh, broad or shallow understanding of these systems. Because, I mean, it seems to me that we can never hope to really defeat these systems until we truly understand them, which I think points to the value of uh, political education on the one hand, but I think it's no coincidence that we've continued to see uh, capitalism continue to crumble and, and seemingly trying to take humanity with it while discussing, you know, someone like um, uh, a Martin Luther King Jr., you know, Mr. Early, who was, you know, very clear on the role that capitalism played in, in, in so many of the issues of bedeviling humanity. Well, well King, you know, as, as he had pointed out early, uh, earlier in his life to his then fiance Coretta King before they were married, uh, that from his economic point of view, that he was really more uh, a socialist than a capitalist. That's almost a direct quote uh, uh, from him. Uh, King was also very clear in the Vietnam speech by breaking the silence beyond Vietnam. He was saying, "Okay, Vietnam is the point." Of, of moral degradation and inhumanity and the killing of a million Vietnamese, quote-unquote, most of them children at the time, according to Dr. King. Uh, he pointed out that it was in this global intersection, it was the U.S., uh, and that what was going on with racism inside our nation and the lack of opportunity for uh, people, black people in particular, uh, was also tied then to the funding uh, of elites. Uh, he talked about, quote-unquote, the landed gentry uh, in Latin America when he references Venezuela and Peru. So he's drawing those connections, but the world has evolved to be more globally integrated. Um, globalization, uh, the highest stage of globalization has taken place uh, since uh, the, the mid 60s, in 67, 68 at this time. And now the, the contradictions uh, of these elite capitalist, economic-inspired wars that are looking to control uh, oil and gas and other fossil fuels uh, is are sh so sharp that they are even pointed out by the Joe Bidens of the world. You know, after several days, it's now revealed, it has to be revealed, uh, that the breadbasket basket in terms of wheat uh, is in uh, the Ukraine, the Russia area of the world, and that it's going to have a major crisis impact around the world. And of course, the people who will suffer most are the people who always suffer most, the marginalized uh, women with children, highly racialized in all of those social categories, working people, as, was, as has been revealed 
with with COVID, uh, the colorization of working class and the genderization of that, the intersection of of of, of skin color and of gender, uh, and and then it gets played out the contradiction of then the mainstream media of all of this empathy, you know. Uh, Joe Scarborough saying that I uphold American exceptionalism and we must uphold Europe and European and Western values. He's basically saying, and you black and brown people and and uh, LGBTQ people who don't fit into my construct of the Bible and so forth and so on, you will bear the brunt of this. So we just have to amplify these stories, give them more visibility, more audibility, uh, because the contradictions are so sharp that they are obvious. So then you've got Bernie Sanders, who's been talking about oligarchs here, uh, saying, okay, you want to talk about the Russian oligarchs, we have to also talk about the oligarchs here. We have to talk about the intersection of all of these right-wing fascists, Steve Bannon and all of them. So these contradictions are beginning to be so much sharper that even the people who are involved in overseeing them and carrying them out are forced to tell a, a thread of truth. And uh, we just help, have to bring more people to that and put more pressure on them and look for a new kinds of leadership. Yeah, that that is definitely the case. And I mean, I, I feel like that's what we 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 aspire to help do on this show every day. And I, and I just happened to be looking uh, over on Facebook on the, the thread of friend of the show, Brian Becker, who posts a picture of black soldiers and an army nurse serving in Vietnam. They took the time out to pose for a picture to observe the birthday of Dr. King. And it's a bunch of black soldiers um, in you know, in Vietnam, in their uh, fatigues and whatnot, holding up a poster, a sign that says, in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, I feel like that picture, if you can visualize that, Black soldiers in Vietnam, more than likely having, having been drafted there, not wanting to fight an imperialist war against a people that did nothing to them, uh, that are suffering the same kind of poverty and oppression that that they, these soldiers, would would come back to, um, taking the time to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for his commitment to human rights, to for his commitment to uh, rights and dignity for working people for his commitment to ending war, ending poverty, ending racism and militarism. And I feel like, Dr. Early, you know, we were talking a little bit about the role of faith and how we deal with, you know, how we deal with, with the faith issue. And I feel like it's important to point out that the one thing we did not hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. do, he didn't try to save anybody's soul. I think that in all of the speeches that we have heard from him that we quote often on this show, we I'm sure he did in his church services at his church. But in this work that it absolutely comes out of his faith, he didn't try to convert people to Christianity. And I think that's a very, very important lesson uh, in in the other part of this question of how do we handle people of faith in the struggle. Because for me, 
it, it this part of the of the equation is we people of faith in the struggle we cannot be trying to proselytize to people and get their souls saved while we're, you know, struggling for labor rights and that kind of thing. We, we need to let people uh, leave their souls to the caretaker of their souls and fight for the human rights of people on this earth, Dr. Earl. Well, the, the one, I have to... Um... You, know, you you refer to me as doctor. I have to point out that I am a, a PhD dropout from the Department of History at Howard University, and and I do uh, uh, appreciate the uh, the title. But I, but I <laughs> it, it 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 happens all the time. I guess I sound like those people. I did learn a lot from them. Um, I'm just thinking about King breaking the silence, and I think this is a important metaphor on the issues that you raised, Jackie, and that is. We have to break the silence and call these people out in the status quo. We have to find a mechanism to do so. And you raised the question earlier about the role of media uh, during Dr. King's time and the role of media today. Social media offers us, with all of the contradictions that it may bring, uh, it is a platform in which we need to organize uh, to call out not only the mass media, the vice president of the United States, who was forced on us as a black woman uh, who is silent on the issue of Haiti and who's over negotiating uh, to protect uh, the elite of Ukraine. So not about protecting the working people of, of Ukraine. It is to protect the elite and the fascists involved in that state. And in this regard, the accusations of Putin are absolutely correct. John McCain was also involved with a lot of those right-wing people. This is a bipartisan affair. We must call out the black head of the Pentagon. And we have to go mass on social media and start to call out these contradictions. And we have to uplift new policymakers from our communities, both on domestic and international front. All of those things must be joined. Those are those are not separate uh, fronts of struggle. Um, we tend to, to over-endow uh, the electoral arena, but it is an arena with consequences. And the consequences flow from what is our on-the-ground, everyday organizing in our workplaces, in our school systems, in our uh, areas of faith for the daily needs uh, that leads us then to send representatives into the electoral to be connected to the electoral arena. Now is the time for us to raise that because uh, this war pushed by NATO and pushed by the U.S. Uh, to confront these atrocities that do come from the Putin administration uh, presently in Russia and the horrendous uh, deaths uh, that are taking place of the thousands of people there is something that is affecting all of us and it is diverting us uh, from those daily routines. So the failure of Biden to step forward and push uh, for all of the promises, both domestic and international, now is the time for us to sew that story together and to hold them accountable. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. Because the only way they will be held accountable is if uh, the movement, if the people on the ground actually do it. It's been shown, <laughs> I think, historically that, you know, these folks won't simply uh, self-correct uh, out of a sense of, you know, moral conviction or, or anything like that. They're more than happy to continue to cast our lives aside if it means that they can continue to lie their pockets 
and do all the things that they want to do while pretending that they're helping us. Well, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank Mr. James Early so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with a new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.